This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Bronwyn Milkins. Hey, mental workers, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have got a spicy topic. It comes from a listener, and I'm excited to have Carly Dober on with me today to talk about it. Hi, Carly. Hi, thank you for having me back. My pleasure. Carly, just remind the listeners who you are. I am a psychologist working and living in Melbourne. I'm also a director at the AAPI with Bonwin. I'm also a nature lover and yoga teacher. Beautiful. I love how you put nature lover in there. Nature is very important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what I'm going to do, Carly, is I'm going to read out this listener dilemma that we had emailed in. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay. So the listener says, I've heard reducing workload mentioned a few times on the podcast as a way to manage burnout, and I've found it very validating. However, I also find that financial goals may make that a hard option to take on. I'd be interested to hear more about what can be done if the situation in private practice is set to five to six clients a day, five days a week. So what's your initial reaction to this, Carly? I just had like a visceral reaction about how many times I've tried to straddle that myself. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have the same reaction. I'm like, oh yeah, that's hard. I hear that. Yep. You've pointed out something. uh, Yep. Quite valid. It is hard to want to make money but also not burn out yeah yeah and I think a lot of psychologists and other early career um, mental health workers will really be struggling with that right now as well yes absolutely so let's unpack this in a few different directions so maybe the first thing that I want to know is do you think it is possible to not burn out and still see clients like but not see too many clients and also earn money? Oh, my God, there's so much I want to say. (laughs) (laughs) I think it is possible. Okay. However, there's so many variables that need to be controlled and managed. But, yes, it is possible, and that's, that's where I, that's the hill I die on. Okay, excellent. I also think it's possible, but, yeah, with, like, a few caveats. So overall, I think you can do it. And I guess it's frustrating for me to think that there are the caveats. It's like, why can't we just be healthy and earn good money? That'd be nice. And this wouldn't be a dilemma. No, the bar is on the floor, but yeah, it would be quite nice. Yeah, totally. So maybe we can start with some considerations around making it possible. What comes to mind for you, Carly? I think to really know what your financial goals are and then what kind of salary band you'd need to look for in a role to get there. Um, Because Bronwyn and I were talking briefly about this beforehand and we mentioned that depending on what role you're looking for, different companies, different organisations, there can be a salary difference sometimes of up to $30,000. And that makes such a significant difference to quality of life and ability to save. I've worked in jobs that I've been paid 50K a year in and was happy to do it, but really not able to save much. And then jobs where I've earned much more and things have felt a lot freer. Yes, I think in that it's really speaking to 
like having financial security, it's not like a preference, like, oh, I'd love to have financial security, but you know, whatever. And likewise, health is also not a preference. It's like, well, I'd like to have good health. Both are essential, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Absolutely. If we can know what our financial goals and needs are, then I guess there's a competitive job market out there. Like there are such high variability in the types of roles available to psychologists, right? I'm really glad that you touched on that because you're absolutely right. And that's something that took me, like in my mind, my body, my soul, a while to actually understand and believe. Oh, okay. that it's quite, yeah. <laughs> well, quite a competitive job market. Yeah. And I didn't have to say yes to the first person that offered me a contract because I, my, my um, financial security has been very um, checkered. Yeah, no, I actually, I don't know why I'm, I'm thinking, oh gosh, Carly took a while to learn that. Cause like I did as well. I honestly thought that, <laughs> yeah, I'm no, I'm no different. I thought, yeah, you, like I was so lucky to be offered a job mm. and like how grateful should yeah. I be? This is amazing. Okay. They're going to offer me 55K. That's all right. I'm so lucky. Um, mm-hmm. So, okay. So it's good for listeners to know that they're actually, it is quite competitive. It is. And unfortunately, um, with rates of mental illness, just continuously tracking upward as each calendar year goes by, unfortunately, the supply will not be able to meet the demand of um, rates of mental distress. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I'm saying your time and your knowledge and your expertise and your desire to support people through this distress is valued and you have more freedom and agency typically than um, you might initially think. Yeah, which I think is really amazing because I think as an early career psychologist, you can underestimate the value that you bring to an organization, to your clients, but it actually is quite special, the skill set that we do have, and it it is quite valuable. It is really valuable, and I think um, one of the complicating factors that will make maybe you and I when we were younger, um, devalue ourselves is seeing the salary discrepancy. Yes. And thinking, well, am I worth, you know, as a as a provisional psychologist or as like an early career psych, am I only worth $55,000 a year? Or am I worth this other job that's saying $90,000 a year as a provisional psych or as an early career psychologist? And that can be really confusing. Um, and I understand that there's access and, you know, what's close to home, what's not, what fits your lifestyle, what fits your interest, but there is certainly a range out there. Yeah, um, I agree. It is quite confusing. I only recently learned, for example, I was speaking with a person from a not-for-profit organization, amazing values-driven organization, but very small. So 15 employees for this not-for-profit, mm-hmm. which is quite small for them. And they openly said, we don't have very high salaries because that's what our, not what our organization can support at this stage. And so for me, that was massive clarity because I was like, huh, it's not really what they think the clinicians are worth. They actually think they're worth more, mm-hmm. but their business structure right now is prohibiting them from having salaries raised across the board. So that was really, that really helped me be like, yeah, it's not a me thing. It's actually that different organizations can offer different salaries. That's really helpful to know as well. I know that certainly I've internalized it or thought that that is a value on the profession in a nutshell, not really thinking it's like the financial um, availability of that organization or that company. So even that is really helpful to know. Yeah. What about like 
What about if an organization you're really keen on is like, hey, we're going to offer you, let's say your financial goal is 90K and they're like, Mm -hmm. we can offer you 80K. What do you think early career psychs have available to them to negotiate or do they have that available to them? Uh, this this is another nuance, like grey area caveat thing, mm. because I think for those who might be desperately in need of a job, I don't want to say you have power, you have agency, negotiate. I mean, you know, you can and you should, but that that risk and that um that safety need kind of interplay is is real, and I really want to say I, I see that I've lived it, I feel that. Um, if you feel confident, it is always worthwhile getting a market average, maybe talking to a union or other sites in the field, just doing a bit of a temperature check. And then collating that info maybe in an email and sending it to the hiring team before you sign anything, just just seeing what might come back. Mm, I agree. It's it's really murky, isn't it? It's like you have to yeah. feel out the organization and know whether mm-hmm. that's permitted. It also depends on the urgency and need for the job as well. So how much flexibility you have, like, can you walk away from this job or do you need this job? Yeah, that's right. And that's why I really want to caution against, you know, a, a blanket statement, yeah. especially, yeah, especially right now when everything is just so goddamn expensive. It's really, really true. Going to be, yeah, you know, like, do I do I risk this job that in all other areas seems fitting when I really do need that extra six k because it would make or break my life or just allow me to do like hobbies other things pay for supervision if it's not included in the contract I think it is always worth it but is it always safe to do so I think there are opportunities within that to explore I imagine this is similar to, say, if we're negotiating our caseload, because the reason why practices have a particular caseload, it might be to meet demand, but it's usually to, I guess, meet the bottom line and and earn the money. So practices make money Mm -hmm. from seeing clients. You do not earn money if you do not see the clients. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you feel like there's any scope to negotiate client loads? I think it really depends on how sustainable the business model is. And I don't mean sustainable just even financially. I mean, um, does the practice owner and does the practice itself have an understanding of safe, supportive, sustainable clinics where practitioners could be in this role if they wanted to with this organisation for 20 years because they're supported, they're not you know, burning and churning through X many clients a day. So I think it's a bit of a philosophy but the practice will have embedded into it and also financial um, financial freedom to do so. Yeah. So it seems like what we're suggesting for listeners is you really need to know the precise situation you're in and gauge that and then decide on a plan of action based on that. It sounds like it as well. And I know that with some private practices, even the percentage that the practitioner will take home can vary as well. So it might be that there's a private practice where you see four clients and you take home less than if you, in the other suburb, you know, they take home a percentage more. Yeah. 
So you can ask around if you've got that luxury. I guess it is a luxury to be able mm. to have that time because mm-hmm. sometimes people change jobs or they're looking for jobs like I need I need a job in the next week, you know, um, or yeah. I've lost my job, my partner's lost their job, I need this job. Um, so it's usually driven by necessity and need. But if you do have that luxury, it really pays or it can pay to search around, check out different salaries, check out different caseloads. I absolutely think so. And even if it's not a luxury right now, um, if that is still a goal of yours, always keep that in mind. And while you're gaining that experience, start hunting around connecting to recruiters or other sites in your um, field and just chat about what people are earning, where where's like a really nice sustainable practice get information if you can't always get the job you want right now. You just need to know the information so you can make an informed decision. One thing that I would recommend to listeners is like, I feel like just as an early career psych, it is really hard to not be seduced and to know your value. I think Mm. knowing your value Mm. is really hard as an early career psych and just having that confidence. Mm. Um, So if you've got a senior psych, like your professional body, like RP, like give them a call and talk with like a mentor, talk with a senior psych and just get their perspective and really like lean on their confidence. Um, But, you know, explain the situation, explain the intricacies, do some problem solving. Um, What do you think, Carly? I absolutely agree with that. And I'd go, um, just, I'd add one more thing as well with all those great suggestions, just to like, um, you know, reach out to as many peers in the field as you can. There's like, you know, RP member forum or, you know, whatever the equivalent for you is, but make a post. Hey, I'm an early career psychologist. I'm a PP, really wanting to work in this field I love and also earn enough just to live and have a bit of fun. Um, You know, where do you all recommend, like, what's out there for me? Because a lot of people have a lot of information and if you don't ask, you don't know. Oh, yes, that's so true. I'm really glad you raised that because it triggered another memory for me, which is that, so Mm -hmm. one of the organisations I used to work for, they... I think they had like a $5,000 bonus if you recruited someone and then they stayed with the organization for six months. Horrible organization. Like that was an organization Uh, that like I left, I burnt out multiple times. They did not care. Mm. Unethical practices would never Mm. recommend it to my worst enemy to work there kind of thing. I got goosebumps. Yeah. And so I I see people who are – I see people oh. who are trying to get people to join this organization mm. and I'm like, is this X? And then I'm like, mm. no, don't do it. Don't do it. And also like, you yeah. don't, you don't realize that they are getting a kickback from this. So I guess just like, yes, yeah, I need to be aware of for listeners. So like, you know, they might not have your best interests at heart in getting mm. you to join the organization. Very, very valuable. That is so, so gnarly. Yeah. Um, so I guess then if that did happen and someone um, was being catfished, unaware. Yeah, it is, it is totally catfishing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of questions would you recommend um, a job seeker ask, like a prospective workplace that's trying to court them into this role? Mm, that's a really good question. One thing I would recommend is that if you see 
a job advertised on Facebook, just ask them explicitly or LinkedIn, is this an ad where you are getting a return for advertising this? Mm. So just ask if they've actually got a motive for posting it and they should be honest and let you know because then you can get a better sense of the context and then you might ask that person more about the job but then you understand that you've got this knowledge knowing that they also receive a substantial kickback. For interviewing an organization, let's say you go ahead and then you get an interview at the organization, I would really ask them, what is your culture like and what do your employees say about your culture? What's the good and the bad? Um, What are your challenges and what do you think is good about your workplace culture? And I think ask those questions explicitly and I know that we can kind of dance around it and be scared because we might not want to lose the job, but I think asking Mm. about the workplace culture is a safe question. What do you think? I definitely think so too and it's from because um, I have um, interviewed people multiple times over many years, it makes you seem interested. Oh, good. Yeah, so I definitely don't think that's a bad question at all, like, you know, bad quotation marks. Yeah. Um, I really recommend that. I think if you're a bit bold and you are safe, you can ask about turnover as well. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. but again, that's a safety thing that you have to assess yeah. and just note your own situation. Um, and I would also now, in my position, I would also ask about burnout, um, you know, if it's a common thing in the practice, how they support people if they are experiencing burnout um, and really ask about the clients per day. Yes. Thing. Yeah. What is the minimum? What is the maximum expectation? Yeah. Because if they might turn around and in the job ad might say something like, um, you'll see five clients per day and then actually in the interview they'll say, oh, up to seven. And I know. Like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Come again? Yeah. Yes. Okay. That's that's a really good question. And I might just add to that as well. Ask them what types of clients. So for example, mm. if the organization mm-hmm. predominantly sees NDIS clients, NDIS clients mm-hmm. usually require more liaison with third parties. They require more reports and they might require more upskilling for how to work safely and effectively for people living with a disability. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say for me, the max when I think of NDIS day is four clients. Um and preferably three to four, actually. There's usually like driving in between that, but there's a lot of like work that goes into it. So we want to be asking directly about caseload, the min and the max. And what's mm-hmm. that other thing you said, Carly? Burnout, uh, turnover. Oh, yeah. Burnout turn- and managing burnout. Yeah. yeah, turnover and burnout as well. I feel like burnout's really good. Like I can't remember which state recently introduced mm-hmm. it. It might be national in New South Wales. Did you see that there was recently like some legislation introduced that work workplaces have an obligation to provide like a psychologically safe workplace yes and overdue but yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. Yeah, totally um so it's like wow whoa whoa people need a psychologically safe workplace like big news um so yeah I think like a lot of workplaces are really getting into that though like whether it's Mm -hmm. mandated or not but they're becoming more aware and so I feel like it should be a safe question to ask like how do you um, help prevent burnout? How do you manage and support workers who are experiencing burnout or at risk of burnout? Yeah, and I guess ultimately, if you get a bit of flack for asking these questions, was it ever going to work out anyway? True. And again, yeah, if you're not financially secure and you can't ask that, I understand that. But if you are in a position where you can, you know, have that really um, transparent two-way conversation before entering the job, if that question makes them raise their heckles and they can't really give you answers, 
that's a lot of really good data as well. It's very true. Yeah. So taking it as data. And another question is around vicarious trauma. So for example, if you're going to be working Mm. at a trauma clinic, that would be a question that I'd be asking. How do you help manage vicarious trauma? How do you prevent this? What are your policies and procedures? Yeah, absolutely. Phenomenal. And again, if they don't really have much, that's a lot of data. Summarizing this, what's your main takeaway that you would want listeners to leave with? You can and should get a temperature check on the salary range in the job market in general and make it not just in the state you're in, like really do it Australia-wide to see um, how much you could potentially earn, what's the upper band, what's the lower band, and then rate that against your own financial goals and health. Yes, I love that. Let's move on to our situations. So yeah, I'm in my own solo private practice. Carly's in her own solo private practice. So we set the fees, um, we set the caseloads. So maybe I'll ask the question Mm. to you, Carly. Has it been viable for you to meet your financial goals and see an amount of clients that I guess reduces your risk of burnout? Oh, this is a question with multiple elements. So sorry if I'm zipping all around the place. No, it's all good. (laughs) <laughs> having, my, having my own private practice has been really helpful for my own financial goals because I found I was working way more as a subcontractor, taking home way less than I could be. And I was kind of like always telling burnout. Oh, interesting. And I didn't, yeah, and I didn't really have um, full control over my calendar or my, the clients I would see. So having more control has really helped burnout in that way. The downside or the risk sometimes of having your own private practice is that um, it can fluctuate. You know, you get cancellations and, you know, don't have a contract. You don't get paid for that. Um, And so as that waxes and wanes and economic stuff impacts that as well, that's something to manage. I will say, though, I have always had something else as well. So I do a bit of work with Swinburne. um, I do some stuff. Um, with Headspace, so I've always had other things to supplement my a bit like base minimum income. I think without it right now, it would be very difficult to do that, and that's just honestly. Yeah, yeah. So with my situation, yeah, I have found having control of my calendar, like you, Carly, to be really helpful. Because I do chop and change because I've been trying to figure out what is a good caseload for me to prevent burnout. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. and so I, I try different things, which I feel like would really annoy a workplace because I'm like constantly changing things. Um, and so I'll try different time slots. I'll try and um, I'm a morning person. So I'll try and see more people in the morning, but then with my client mm. population, um, they like to sleep in sometimes. So um, that might not work. So it's really finding out what works but I love the autonomy of being able to Mm. decide my caseload. Like you say, the challenge is maintaining fluctuations. So I remember in, I think it was in April, I had like my highest earning month in private practice. Um, But then I think it was followed by May is like my lowest earning month. Um, Just lots Mm. of cancellations, lots of holidays, lots of sickness. And so I feel like it's really getting good at tolerating that discomfort and uncertainty that comes with these fluctuations mm. and looking at the bigger picture. Oh, I felt that in my bones when yeah. it's like managing and tolerating that because I think um, my baseline because of my history of financial instability, Yeah, I think that is difficult. Mm, it would be. And I have a tendency to overbook myself and overwork 
but I, it is a process of me changing that and again tolerating that and knowing that like it'll be okay yeah if I have like a low month yeah yeah, yeah. Um, no, and that makes sense that if you've got a history of financial insecurity, like it's going to be more difficult to ride those waves. And yeah, you might have thoughts come up like, oh, is it going to be like this forever? Or like, you know, how am I going to weather this out? Um, uh, like, do I need to enact emergency? Okay, contact every referrer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's quite challenging and difficult in that sense. And it makes sense that you would also have other I guess, areas where you're earning money. Yeah. And I, I think I'm um, also because I like to keep things interesting and I like to do different things. Like I have a novelty seeking brain. So yeah. that meets that need as well. And also that autonomy, like nothing feels as good as that. Like, oh, today I feel like doing this. Yes. And tomorrow, maybe next week I feel like doing that. So that's, that has always been way more satisfying than how difficult sitting with a slow week might ever feel. Yeah. So even, yeah, even with all that, I would still go private practice, um, managing my own calendar any day. The, the benefits for me and the rewards are far away any like anxious day I might have. Me too. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was doing solo private practice as my only job for two years. And I have to say, since I've taken on, I've taken on a research role last year, um, since I took that on, the anxiety has lowered around pay and finances because I know that that's that's a part-time contract so I'm always going to get that money it's it's hugely um relieving actually (laughs) Uh, yeah yeah it's sick leave yeah it's amazing um but but I still wouldn't give up my private practice I love having Mm. the ability to uh, prioritize my health and I feel like for me I am reaching my financial goals in private practice but that said that came with increasing my prices for sessions for sure yeah I had when I started out private practice um, I had terrible guilt around charging people and earning money mm. you know a lot of those money stories coming up and my prices were at least like $60 cheaper than the next person um yeah yeah um so I think it is possible to not burn out and see four clients a day and reach your financial mm. goals, but you have to be charging appropriately. And that comes with valuing your skills and what you're offering people. So now that I've been in it for a few years, I like feel that I've earned that, but I feel like I could have had that perspective right from the start as well. I'm so glad you brought that up because yes, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is it is really important to value. And I think and we can get in the trap of, well, you know, you're paying for the 15 minutes. They're, they're never just paying. No, for oh, so true, so true. Yeah, they never are. They are always paying for your years of academic um, education, your um, career experience working with mental ill health, the admin and the work you do beforehand, researching, and all the comms you do after to the GP, to the psychiatrist, to whomever's in the party. Like, it is never just 50 minutes. Uh, preach. Yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, you know, the more I learn about therapy and the more I think about the therapeutic relationship, I, I realize how unique our offering is to clients. It's like, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, we are offering a safe, non-judgmental, validating space with someone who has expertise in how to work with your concerns and get you to where you want to be, um, all whilst suiting your preferences and tailoring therapy to you. Like that's an amazing offering. It's honestly incredible. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I think about it with like setting my fees now. I'm like, yep, that's that's it. And like you say, like all the academic experience and um, yeah. and all the stuff we do outside of sessions as well, all the planning, all the reviewing, all the supervision. 
and just all the you know the hours that you spend on PD or like researching everyone's like clinical journals just oh, to kind totally. of what's going on. Yeah, so I I think when people are thinking about burnout and you know considering like a price a fee, don't undervalue yourself and the profession too. And that can be very hard. I was much like you, Bronwyn. I was like, oh. I should only both bill because I'm I'm new and yeah. oh my god, my ass. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I uh, when I first started my private practice, I literally said to people, "I'm going to be a bulk billing practice because <laughs> like my my money story was so poor, and I'm really glad I didn't go through with that." Oh, and it comes from a good place. It I totally does. Ultimately. It shows how much how many of us want to bulk bill, but we know like the bulk billing rate is just not in any way you know, measurable against like a health appointment. But anyway, that's a whole different like podcast brand. Yeah, but but I mean just to like guys, if you bulk bill, you will earn between eighteen and twenty thousand dollars mm-hmm. a year. That's that's yep. that's peanuts. Yeah. And you even if you work seven if you, you know, see seven clients and you bulk bill, you do five days a week, you are going to burn out. Oh, absolutely. Like so, I think um, financial security includes, fortunately, for now, until the bulk billing rate changes, it includes not bulk billing. It's it's so sad, but it's it's yeah yeah. It's just like you know, if you burn out, then you can't be there for your clients. If you're financially unstable, mm-hmm. that's going to cause you stress. How are you going to show up in that's your right. sessions for your clients? Like, I'm trying to speaking right. to the converted, but it's just like, yeah, would love to. We're all such caring professionals, yeah. and we just we we want to alleviate suffering, not create it. Um, yeah, yeah, but it's it's when we when we look at ourselves, and you know, we need to take care of ourselves. Our needs are as important. That's right. And it also, I mean, if we're thinking about service in the population, and, you know, I think a lot of people go into psychology and good faith wanting to be a psychologist for decades. Yeah. They can. Yes. You know, it means sustainability mm. in, you know, sustainability, self care. How can I support the profession as well? And if I see a colleague of mine fresh, full of beans, really wanting to make a difference and they're bulk billing, how can I um, go to them with compassion, with grace, and just say, you know, What's your burnout plan if it happens? Because it's likely it will. Like, you know, how can you engage in a conversation there? Yes. Yeah, precisely. I do want to say to listeners that your financial goals may take a few years to achieve, um, just to be realistic. So I'll give listeners a few numbers. But in the first year of my private practice, my taxable income was $55,000 just from private practice. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it's not much. Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) Twinsies. I was Um, so proud. I was like, wow. I was really proud. It is something to be proud of, Carly, because it's like, um, you know, if you think of another business, like some businesses Mm. don't make profit for the first few years. This is what I told myself. <laughs> um, but also it takes a lot of money to run a private practice. So like my expenses in that first year were thirty five thousand. Mm-hmm. And your tax bill would have been quite big. Yeah, as well, it was about yeah, fifteen. Yeah, super. So there's there's a lot that goes into that. So yeah, in my first year, fifty five thousand kind of undercharging, not seeing as many clients as I see now, um, building up my caseload. Um now my my last, um, this year I'm earning about 75 from private practice. Um, and that's been, uh, I took like two months off over Christmas. So I feel like, okay, so that's the amount I'm up to with like preventing burnout for me. And I've mm-hmm. got money on top of that from my other jobs. Um, but that's not too bad for me, actually. 
Bronwyn, that's amazing. She Thank you. So proud yeah. Because it is all about how can I build up sustainably yeah. while attending to all the other things that I need to pay for. And I really like how you said financial goals can take time. Yeah. Because they can. Yeah. Especially when you're paying tax off or health debts. Yep. PD, professional memberships, all that kind of stuff that is part of being a psychologist. Yep. And so I think that's why it's really important. Advocate for your needs, advocate for the salary, like either that is what you want over or like almost there. Yes. It is so worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, when I was working at Awful Organization that I mentioned beforehand, I think my salary was like, 83,000, but the burnout and the toxicity of the mm. workplace just mm. wasn't worth the salary. Um, and the, I guess the consequences to my health. I guess this brings us to like one of the points that you were making off air, Carly, which is that like you can really empathize with like dancing the dance around this. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's, it's a dance. Like there will be roles where the, the money is amazing, um, but at what cost? You know, because I've had a situation where I was earning great money and um, I will not name the role, but it was me servicing about 1,500 people. And when I was interviewed. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And when I was interviewed, they were like, oh, there were two psychologists in this role before. There's going to be another one soon. Six months went by. No one was hired. Another six months went by. No one was hired. And at the 18th month mark, I was just like, this is never going to happen. I was seduced. Mm-hmm. Um. And I can continue to work this hard, but everything else in my life is going to fray and it's not worth it. So, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I like, I was just audibly gasping then because of how awful that sounds. I was the art of the seduction. I was seduced. Totally. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry you encountered that. But it just, yeah, it, it, that's what I mean. Like, it is, it is a dance and you might get burned a few times, hopefully less with some of the points in this show if you listen to them. but. Yeah. Yeah, definitely my aim with um this episode is like I just don't want exploitation to be a normal experience that other <gasps> career psychs go through. Like oh it shouldn't God. be a rite of passage. It's just like oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I would love if like, yeah, I talked to a group of early career psychs and it was just like, who's been exploited? And you know, no no hands were raised. That would be, you know, the yeah. dream. Yeah. <laughs> Great, we're all good. I'd be so proud. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a single two-year-old down. Oh like, my god. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Our work is done and then we just like disappear into the night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like dancing the dance, this is hard. And I hope we've uh, addressed this listener's dilemma. I mean, just returning to it, it's like they're interested to hear about what can be done if the situation. Oh, yes. Okay. So what if the private practice, just to make sure we've fully answered the dilemma, what mm. if they're like, no, you see five to six clients a day, five days a week, non-negotiable. Oh, then it comes down to your own values and what you feel your capacities at that time and what you're willing to do. And again, that's a safety and luxury kind of thing. Yeah. If it is a luxury and if you know that there's more out there, like run to the hills. I don't know. Like Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Mm. Like yeah. honestly there, there is better out there. There is, there is better out there. I completely mm. agree. There is better. And if you want a sustainable career, um mm. you mm. I would say like obviously people have different capacities to see different clients depending on their presentations and stuff like that. But five to six clients a day, five days a week, you know, if I had a bell curve, 
Uh, you know, I'd say at least like 90% of people would really find that unsustainable in the long term. I actually recoiled when you said that because I was thinking of just the output and how drained I would be on yeah. Friday and how I wouldn't actually be able to go and see my friends or do any of the self-care things that actually make my life worth living. It would, yeah, oh my God. Yeah, I know that some people can do that, again, outside of that bell curve. Yeah. It's not me. No, it's not me either. No, if that was me and I have done that um, for a period of time, Mm -hmm. I literally come back home and sit on, like lie down on the couch and I flop there all night. I don't help with dinner. I don't do dishes. I don't do anything else that recharges me. I literally have to stay on the couch um, and I'm just a zombie. Yeah. And is that, I mean, you're not really living. No, no, I don't count that as living. No. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It would have been so funny, Carly, if I was like, no, that's exactly my idea of living. How dare you judge me? (laughs) No, but it's not. I would love to be able to have like gone for a walk outside, like um, talk to my loved ones, engage in a conversation Mm. with my partner. Yeah. It's not, for most people, it's not the life that you want to lead. No, and I think that um, there will always be businesses or organisations, A, who don't actually understand the work that we do because many private practice owners aren't psychologists. Mm. So do keep that in mind. And I typically find those who are psychologists or maybe married to psychologists or something, they kind of get it. But the ones who aren't, they some of them have no idea. Yes, yeah. So they're like, so like what, you just talk about feelings. How hard is that? Just, just why can't you see six a day? five days and you know is it your role to really educate this person like I I don't think so I think they they are a private practice owner they should really be all across how um, complex our role is but yeah yeah, no, I had a CEO at another organization who exactly said that and was like, your job is easy. You just oh sit God. there and talk to people. <gasps> and all of us just internally fuming um, and they were unwilling to update their perspective and unwilling to change mm-hmm. their mind. And it was another organization that I left because it was just like mm-hmm. all of their caseload stemmed from that belief that this is very easy work. <laughs> Yeah, and again, if you don't actually value and understand it and you think it's easy, of course you're going to ask people to work for a pittance and mm-hmm. see that many people a day, five days a week. And again, that's that's the symptom of like a big issue that will bite you in the long run, unfortunately. Yes, yeah. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me angry. I'm fuming now. I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's bring listeners back down. Are there any... Any last things that you want listeners to take away from today? Um, I hope it's been like a, an exciting and informative episode because I think that they, there are amazing jobs out there. Private practice is amazing when it is sustainable. Like I really want to press. I have so much autonomy and so much joy and I feel like this is, this is really sustainable and, yeah, you are, you are worth like meeting your needs and working in a sustainable way. Uh, I 100% agree. And I'm really pleased to hear that for you as well, Carly. It, it must be nice. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and likewise, like, I feel like I'm working towards sustainability. I feel like I'm, I'm getting there. Mm. It has been hard with the additional job on top, but managing it mm. as I'm going along. But I agree that there are really good jobs out there. And if you have the ability to keep on job hunting, compare salaries, compare caseloads, mm-hmm. it's an employee's market right now. So yeah, try and talk to a mentor, talk to a senior psych, talk to RP and make sure you get that good advice so you can meet your goals. Yeah, agree. Cool. 
Well, Carly, if listeners want to find out more about you, where can they find you? Um, you can find me, you can connect me um, through the RP um, membership portal or on my Instagram at Enriching Lives Psychology. Um, I always love talking and meeting other psychologists in Australia. Fantastic. And I'll link to those in the show notes. I always love linking RP. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Carly. And thank you, listeners, for listening. I hope this was an informative and really good episode for you where you've got some good takeaways. Have a good one and catch you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. If there's someone you know who might love this show, let them know about it. It's the best way to get the podcast into new listeners' ears, and I'd be so grateful for it. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time. Thank you.